Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is international best-selling novelist Dean Kuntz, whose new book, Elsewhere, will be published October 20th. Dean Kuntz, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Well, thanks for having me there. One of the, the first thing I noticed when I opened this book is it takes some pretty creative typography to get the list of books also by Dean Koontz <laughs> all put onto one page. Can you talk a little bit about your your process, your discipline as a writer that allows you to to have the kind of output that you do? Uh, I'm I'm potentially an obsessive personality. I think uh, when I get interested in something, I go over the top with it. And uh, the first thing I think I ever got interested in life uh, was books uh, and writing. I was writing little stories when I was eight years old on tablet paper and peddling them to relatives for a nickel. I was drawing the cover and doing the whole deal. Um, and I, I've just been obsessed with writing almost more than anything else. So when you've got an obsession like that, you don't have to force yourself up in the morning. You kind of look forward to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go to work in the morning at, uh, well, I'm up at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and I take the dog for a walk and feed her. And uh, by the time I'm at my desk it's and have read the morning paper, it's no later than 7, 7.30. And I just work through until dinner. I never have lunch or rarely. Hmm. Uh, because it fogs my brain to have food during midday. And uh, and I would rather be doing this than anything else. Uh, I'm not very good at lying by the pool with an umbrella drink. <laughs> and, uh, and as a consequence, uh, if you love it, it's a, it's a great boon in life to have work that you find to be in part play. That isn't saying it isn't hard. You know it's hard. You do it too. So it's uh, it's it stretches you every day uh, to do it. But at the same time, uh, there's a great satisfaction when you feel, after a lot of sturm und drang, that you might have done it well. And I think that's just where it comes from. If I wasn't obsessed about writing, I'd be obsessed about something a lot less healthy, and my life would have gone in a different direction. Now, this book, um, we're going to talk about the details as we as we get further on, but I'm curious about what, for you, came first. Was it the hook, the central idea? Was it the characters? Was it the setting? Um, what, what drew you into the story originally? Well, sometimes it is a premise, as I say, a little idea of, a, oh, that'd be a, a cool thing to begin a story with or to have a story be about. Um, but sometimes it's nothing more than a character. Mm -hmm. uh, the Odd Thomas books came to me totally as a character. Uh, in this case, I was, I can't even remember what I was doing, uh, but I, I wasn't doing anything related to work. 
when, for some reason, I thought, I've never done a father-daughter story, mm. a father-daughter relationship. And I thought, hmm, after all these books, it's odd that I haven't hit upon that. And I got intrigued about doing it, but that's not a story. So the next thing that came to mind is, uh, and this all happens within a minute, few minutes, uh, the, I thought, well, where's the mother? And I thought, well, there's more of a story if the mother walked out on them when the girl was four and she's now 11 and the girl is yearning for a mother she hasn't seen since she was four. And that's still not a story, but it's a little more interesting. And what if the husband is still in love with her? What if they assume she's dead? Then it starts to look like something of a, you know, a mystery that we've seen too often. Now, at the same time, I read a lot of quantum mechanics, uh, molecular biology. I have, for most of my life, been interested in science. Uh, and I am well aware, I've read many alternate world stories, parallel world, multiverse things. Never thought I'd write one because I didn't want to write something that had the, the likelihood it would go into an over-the-top kind of uh, uh, flamboyant science fiction novel. Yeah. I wanted to write about real world, about real world issues and people. Uh, but suddenly uh, I realized, ah, this is interesting. It can be a real world story if some device falls into their hands that allows them to move into a different version of this beach down in California. And they, when this happens and they understand the multiverse, that there are an infinite number of parallel worlds, Maybe somewhere there is the mother that they, mm -hmm. she has lost and the wife that he still loves who has never married and never had this child who might be open to falling in love with him again yeah. or for the first time for her. And that, of course, isn't the story that happened, but it's the story I started to write. It's yeah. still part of this story, but it, it got into something much bigger and more of an adventure fantasy story. Yeah, yeah. As you said, you talked about starting with, with these characters, and you begin not with a device that moves you back and forth to parallel universes, but you begin with a woman's been missing for seven years. She could be declared legally dead, but her, her husband chooses not to do that. But he does choose to have his marriage dissolved. What, what does that tell us about Jeff, do you think, and, and both his relationship with his missing wife and, and with himself? Uh, Jeffy is, uh, I knew from the beginning, he was going to be a little bit different character for me because he was going to be a dreamer who, uh, who really wished he lived in another time. The, the 20s and 30s, he's very big into Art Deco and restores Bakelite radios, which I collect, by the way. And he, uh, he's, uh, I thought, okay, uh, this character who starts coming to you pretty quickly, if he's this dreamer uh, who's done a real good job of raising this girl on his own, and they have this very, you know, almost relationship that goes beyond father and daughter. It's more like a buddy relationship mm -hmm. to an extent. Mm -hmm. The, the father-daughter relationship is there. Uh, then, uh, then Jeffy is not going to be the kind of character who would ever want to accept that his wife is actually dead. Though we have to kind of assume she is because she's never been heard from again. So I could see him at some point after waiting seven years to say, 
okay, I have to dissolve this marriage because she isn't coming back. Um, but uh, I don't want to tell myself she's dead. And that really begins to define Jeffy, I think, in a way that makes us find him very appealing, that he can't take that that darker step to have her declared dead. Yeah, I love this idea that Jeffy is so fascinated by the past, and yet where he ends up moving is not so much in time as it is kind of across time, across these, you know, multiverses. Uh, so he does, he does see different places, imaginative places, but not, not the ones he's been living in, in his own imagination. No, I, I wanted he and his daughter to love some of the fantasy novels. I love like the, the princess bride or, yeah, yeah. uh, the tale of Despero, Kate DiCamillo. I just love Kate DiCamillo. And, uh, uh, so I, since I'm fascinated with those stories, and uh, I, I thought it, well, it would be kind of fun if they, uh, this is where they get the wherewithal and the knowledge of how to handle themselves when they're thrown into this, uh, these other versions of Suavidad Beach where some really bad things are happening. Yeah, yeah. One of the first questions I felt like I encountered in this book as a reader is, how does a rational person react to what seems on the surface to be irrational information or to be an unbelievable situation. Do, do you think as readers we're more likely to be accepting of those situations in, in fiction than we would be in our own lives? I, I kind of think so. Uh, I've had a few odd experiences in my life. I, I said recently I'll write about them when I'm at the point in my life that I don't care if people think I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, but the world is strangely complex and and there are aspects of it, of course, infinite aspects of it we don't understand. What science is is, a, is not an explanation of anything. It's a, it's an incredible uh, tool of knowledge. But if you look back on science, everything we thought we knew 50 years ago yes. has been turned on its head. Mm -hmm. And that just keeps happening. Um, and so the world is uh, fabulously complex and interesting. And uh, But yeah, I think we can accept it easier than fiction in our own lives. Uh, in our own lives, we tend to re react with fear in when we're, we have uh, essentially an avatar. Uh, Jeffy is our avatar and yeah. Amity. And through them, we can experience something that in our own lives, we might find pretty terrifying. In their lives, we can find entertaining. I think I found, you know, I, I trust the writer and so when the writer tells me, here's a device that'll move you across multiple universes, I go, oh, this is great. This will be really good read. If, if a person came to my house and told me that, I think my reaction would be, yeah, you're, you're off your rocker. I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to buy that. You know? So I think that's, that's one of the nice things about being in that world of fiction. Um, well, of course, when Spooky Ed, the homeless man who brings yeah. them this device, uh, he, he, they've, they've gotten to know him because he stops by on their porch and sits and talks. But he says to Jeffy one night, I'm, every really bad people are after me. They want this, hands him a ratty old gift box tied up with string, <laughs> and says, uh, and never open this. For God's sake, never use what's in it. And if I don't come back for it in a year, you'll know I'm dead. Then put it in a barrel, fill the barrel with concrete, take it out in the ocean and sink it in a thousand feet of water. And it costs $76 billion to develop. <laughs> 
and of course they think, what a nut! This guy didn't seem to be crazy, and now obviously is. Except the next morning, all those bad people show up. Right. And yeah. I had a lot of fun with the character of Spooky. At that, that's that's it's uh, it's that sort of thing in this kind of story. I think it actually, in the strangest way, makes it work with this eccentric, strange man who shows up at the door. Yeah, yeah. Now you introduce the readers to several different parallel universes as your as your heroes move around, and without my passing moral judgment on a universe by saying one is better than the other or one is good <laughs> and one is bad, it's certainly true that some of them are more hospitable to our heroes than others are. Um, which what type of universe did you have the most fun writing, and why? Uh, I I didn't want to keep them too long in any one version because I wanted the story to keep moving and uh, and kind of keep the reader twisting and turning through the course of it. Uh, I, I think uh, I had fun imagining, I think the first one uh, uh, where they have no idea what they're about to encounter, but they have this sort of hopeful idea that they're going to find the uh, the wife there because they find out she does live there uh, in the house that she lived in when she was a child with her father. But what they encounter is something far different than they anticipated. And the first uh, first little thing, the town seems relatively ordinary, just here and there some sense that something's badly wrong in this world. Uh, and that was fun because it was the first one. Uh, and of course, it was kind of fun describing what is the perfect world uh, at, at the sort of end of it. I don't know; they're they're all kind of fun because they test your imagination. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the questions the book the reader is going to come away from this book is: if you could live in a different universe, what would what would those differences be? What things might you tweak in your own life or or globally uh, to create your own utopia? Did did you imagine any utopias that that didn't make it into the book that? that were sort of your personal universe you'd like to live in? <laughs> I'm a non-believer in utopias. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the history of humanity is pursuing utopias that always end in blood. And uh, it, it's an imperfect world. We're an imperfect species, and we can't be perfected. But they end up in a pretty good world uh, mm-hmm. at one point in this. And, uh, and that was a little bit of fun, trying to figure out why... What kind of world would it be uh, where there hadn't been all these wars and where where there were, people got along with one another better than they do in our world? And it seemed to me when I got there that if we could eliminate a lot of destructive ideologies, mm-hmm. which people take to themselves as, well, as almost the alternative to a religion or whatever, and then history is shaped by those ideologies, what if people just... There was a world where people said, oh, that's just as crazy as Spooky Edge showing up at our door with this crazy proposal. And nobody ever followed those ideologies. Um, There's a great book by uh, uh, Paul Johnson, the British writer, called Intellectuals. And it's sort of about this. He takes, I don't know, a dozen intellectuals whose ideas really shape our world, and mostly in not good ways. And then he tells you about their lives and how dysfunctional each of them was. In, and it's a fascinating book. And it makes you wonder, okay, how did these ideas that, in retrospect, 
just don't make a lot of sense. How do they sweep people away uh, into into following them into terribly destructive ends? Um, And so when I thought about the closest thing I could imagine to a utopia is somewhere where it's what Paul Johnson says at the end of that book. People matter, ideas don't. Uh, Or people matter more than ideas. And that's what goes wrong with a lot of ideology. The ideology becomes more important than the people it's supposed to be serving or protecting or refining. And, uh, And so I thought, well, the closest thing to be a utopia is where for some reason unknown... Uh, people didn't get caught up in all these uh, excitable ideologies that our world has gotten caught up in. Yeah. Now, Jeff's daughter, Amity, strikes me as a particularly bright and independent thinking 11-year-old. Tell us a little bit about her character and particularly how her character is shaped by the absence of her mother. Uh, I, I have known, I, 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 write, I tend to write about kids who are uh, precocious. Uh, and it's not because for any reason other than I have known quite a number of them that were very precocious. And I have also, because my wife and I uh, work with a charity that provides uh, assistance dogs uh, for people with severe disabilities, many of them children, I have encountered children with terrible disabilities who were very bright, very indomitable kids, uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, and they face the world like adults. And I think it was, you know, the, the, the suffering they go through, uh, the, the burden they carry with their disabilities that have shaped them. And so I've always sort of written about kids like that. And I think in Amity, she doesn't have a physical disability or a learning disability, but she has no mother. And mm-hmm. I think some kids can be very much shaped in a positive way, by the way they deal with the vicissitudes of life, and uh, and she's one such. Uh, I've had occasionally somebody will uh, say to me, uh, or write me, or say to me in an event where I would speak, well, I love that kid character, but it's unrealistic. <laughs> I have three children, and none of them are like that. And I I have to restrain myself saying, I didn't want to write about your children. I wanted to write about a child I might really love to have as one of my own. And, uh, and so Amity comes out of that experience of finding and seeing in my own life so many children of that kind that uh, kind of take your breath away by how, how grown up they are at an early age. And, and if you read enough history, you discover that there was a time when kids were grown up and and precocious by the time they were 11 to 12, almost by standard. We didn't have ages before ours. You go back to the 1700s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, children didn't have the extended childhoods that we have now given them. And so uh, I don't think, I think kids have the capacity uh, to become what Amity is if they're, they're in the environment that allows it to happen. And her worldview seems very much shaped by the fact that she's such a voracious reader. You mentioned this a little bit earlier. What what are the advantages for you as a writer of having her so often view the world that she encounters through the lens of the books that she's read? Well, in a little bit of a way, that's 
Amity is me because uh, I, I've spoken of it before. I grew up in a very tenuous situation. My dad was a violent alcoholic, always threatening to kill us uh, when he would lose yet another job. And uh, and you had to come to believe him. Uh, and uh, we never knew if we'd have a roof over our heads or from day to day. And books were my escape. I was a reader from a very young age and uh, read all the young adult novels and all the kids' books. And when I was 12, the town librarian said, well, we don't let, this was a different age, we don't let uh, kids read, check out adult books till they're 18. But in your case, I'll let you go into the adult section. <laughs> so, so books really shaped me and uh, showed me different ways to live a life. And Amity is sort of that way. But her and her father are big into fantasy novels, so... Uh, and fantasy novels, uh, the best of them, are really about how to live a life uh, and how to cope uh, with uh, great uh, great setbacks because fantasy novels, always the characters are a death source of chapter by chapter. There's one point, um, Amity and I share a fondness for The Princess Bride, I have to say. I, I'm a great fan of both the book and the film, um, and actually yeah. allude to it in my own novel, so I love seeing it alluded to in your novel. Um, but when she's th- Amity's talking about The Princess Bride, um, she's musing about the power of laughter, and she says something that really struck me. She said, laughter wasn't just a medicine for melancholy, but also a sword raised against evil. Can you talk about what she means by that? Uh, yeah, absolutely, it's uh, it's part of the way I dealt with life. I uh, because my novels have a, a lot of hope woven through them, no matter how dark they get. Uh, I get frequently asked, "Do you really? Are you really as hopeful as your work would seem to say you are?" And I actually am. I'm an optimist, uh, and I, I'm well aware of evil in the world. I, I grew up with it right in the house, uh, and I realized the. the indomitable nature of, uh, or the implacable nature of evil. But, uh, but at the same time, unlike Amity, I have found that laughter is what gets me through the day. Um, uh, when I do my social media posts or write the newsletter we send out, humor is always a big part of it. I've written comic novels, a lot of flat-out comic novels like uh, Life Expectancy, which has suspense, but it's more a comic novel. Um, when I first started doing that, publishers weren't real crazy about it, uh, but I persisted and got away with it. And it's how actually how I deal with life. If, if you can laugh at something, and I have to say that if you let enough time go by, almost anything in life becomes amusing mm-hmm. uh, that isn't at the time. but uh, And that's because we're all, I've said humanity is a parade of fools, and I'm right at front of it with the baton. Uh, and it's, uh, if, if you look at life that way, uh, you, you, I think you get through it a lot better. And it is a sword against evil, because if you can laugh at, at evil, evil loses its power over you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why there's a lot of very bad people who have no sense of humor. <laughs> uh, when you're when you're as narcissistic as uh, as a lot of very evil people are, you can't laugh at yourself. And when you can't laugh at yourself, uh, you 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 pretty much lost a large part of your soul, if not all of it. Mm-hmm. 
I have to say for me, reading this book, not only in an election year, but also in a pandemic year, I can't help but see parallels to our current situation when I read lines like, I'm going to quote a couple here, um, the real world had become weirder than even the darkest fairy tales. I, every morning I sort of think that. Or was this version of America a stable democracy or might it be teetering on the brink of tyranny? And and that sort of, those sort of parallels made me wonder to what extent do, do current events underlie your writing and and how do you use those references to a particular situation yet still keep your story universal? I'm I'm not much of uh, interested in getting politics into a story. I'm more interested in enduring human issues and and problems and and characteristics. Uh, sometimes when you write about these things, uh, you'll get a letter saying, uh, "Well, you." liberal nut or you conservative nut. <laughs> right. I've had letters the same day accusing me of the same things. Yeah, yeah. It's just because you're writing about things that touch upon those issues. Uh, I, I make a particular effort not to uh, start wading into the contemporary scene in a novel mm-hmm. uh, for the simple reason that once you do, the fiction ceases to be fiction and starts to become propaganda. Yeah. And uh, and then it ceases to be art. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's a fine wire to walk. Uh, and I certainly knew that if they were going to go into some of these worlds, uh, uh, a few of these different worlds, uh, there, were gonna, there was going to be one uh, that you would say, male with this might sort of be a fascist America, and uh, and just have a little chill from that. But really, it wasn't anything contemporary that made me do that. I would have probably, if this idea had come to me thirty years ago, I'd have probably still done it quite the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I was I was fascinated with your imaginative leaps in creating all of these different versions where often the the character comes into a universe and doesn't immediately know what's wrong just knows that something's wrong yeah it's uh the uh, i don't want to give anything away yeah, but when yeah. they come into the world where there's no lighting and and there seems to be no people and yet the town is there uh and uh that uh, it, it's kind of that kind of thing is fun as a writer, to throw characters into a situation that is so strange and they have to puzzle their way through to what in the world is going on here. One of my earlier novels is a novel called Phantoms, and uh, in it, uh, uh, two sisters come home to a small California mountain town of uh, you know, maybe 1,200, 1,500 people, and there's nobody to be seen anywhere, and there seems to be nobody alive anywhere. And then they start finding a couple of houses where the tables were set for dinner, and and nobody's there, and the food is still warm on the plate. Mm. Uh, And then occasionally they find a body (laughs) (laughs) in very strange conditions. And I had enormous fun. It's, It's an early book, not quite as well put together, although it's been very popular. Uh, and that kind of setup where you put the character in some place that you, you think, what, what in the hell is happening here? Yeah, yeah. And then let them find their way. Uh, it's, it's a very, I wish I could find more stories like that because it's kind of a special kind of fun. Yeah, I think it works so well because it sort of, in some ways it parallels the experience of a reader going into the world of a book and having to find their way 
through, you know, discovering what what kind of world that they're in. Um, to 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 go to a less dark place for a minute, I found I was so surprised by this. I found one of the most touching relationships in the novel is this very simple one between Amity and her pet mouse. Can you can you talk about that dynamic and and why you chose to include it? Well, I I'm. I'm well known for including dogs in a lot of stories I write because I'm head over heels for golden retrievers and I've had three, each one a totally different personality and each one uh, enduring in in many of the same ways. And uh, and so uh, I know that readers relate to that, but uh, of having an animal uh, in the story, and I know how a love of animals can uh, can so enrich your life. Um, it's hard for me to imagine life without a dog now. Um, although I live most of my life without one. Um, and, uh, uh, so when I was looking at this story, this actually, I thought, well, here's this device that they have been given and they've been warned in the most dire way. Don't open this box, which of course they do. And don't touch this thing and don't for God's sake, use it. Well, they do touch it, but they don't know how to use it, and it's laying on the table. And I thought and thought, uh, uh, as I was getting into the early chapters, uh, at some point, they're going to have to use this, and how are you going to make this believable? And then I realized, if if she has the mouse, and the mouse is the one who scampers down her arm (laughs) and plops onto the device, and they don't use it, but they're suddenly caught up in the action of the device. So it was really sort of a plot device to, to for the mouse. But then once you put the mouse in there, uh, you know, I had a, I knew a kid would have a great relationship with a white mouse. And uh, I also, uh, in the story, it said that she wants a dog, but she's not sure she can handle the responsibility of the dog. And the mouse has got a lifespan of a few years. By the time she's dealt with the mouse, she'll find out whether she's right for a dog. So it's kind of practice. And and it allowed her to have that kind of lovely little relationship with Snowball. Yeah, yeah. You write about your antagonist in Elsewhere. His malice festered into a virulent and implacable rancor from which he took great pleasure. What do you think makes a great villain in fiction? Because this guy is a great villain. I uh, I tend to write. Uh, I don't tend to write just about people who, you know, stole your money or. Uh, I mean, I can do that kind of thing. Uh, I I find myself writing about people who are either sociopaths or borderline sociopaths, uh, and I think that comes out of the fact that. I spent my whole life, the last 14 years, supporting my father in an effort, uh, and we moved him to California after we lived here. Uh, couldn't have him in my house, but moved him, put him in an apartment. And it was an effort to understand him, uh, and thinking, if only I could understand him and why he behaved all these years the way he did, uh, there would be some sort of reproach moment. You know, we'd get, we'd understand each other and, and we'd get close at last. And I finally was, came to the understanding that would never happen. And he, he had episodes of psychotic behavior, 
while he was here, and uh, in one, well, in two cases, he ended up in a psych ward, and uh, and it was the second psych ward in which he was uh, diagnosed as sociopathic, mm-hmm. and it was eye-opening to me at that point that that had been the kind of character I was writing about, not really quite realizing I was writing about an aspect of my father. Yeah. And subsequently, that's definitely what I have done. And it it's endlessly fascinating to me that uh, there are people who will choose evil, uh, which doesn't, as I have said in books, evil doesn't work. It works in the short term, sometimes wonderfully, but it never works in the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yet people go that route, uh, and uh, it, it kind of fascinates me. So my villains are really dark, uh, but uh, but they're uh, they're based on reality. They're not so much uh, uh, fantasy villains. Um, uh, as they are uh, people from my own personal experience I've encountered, in fact, uh, lived with one for many years. And one of the things, not just about the villain, but about some of the other characters in the novel, too, is you get to sort of explore some nuances of their character by going to another universe and seeing a slightly different version yeah. of that same character. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I, you know, when I was working on this, I... Uh, I, I've been always fascinated by uh, the idea that uh, as much as I love science, and as I've a few thousand science books in my collection, and probably five or six hundred are about quantum mechanics and related issues like multiverse. And uh, uh, in spite of my love of science, I, I'm well aware that science cannot tell you what life means. Uh, science is a brilliant form of knowledge, but it, it doesn't end up proving anything about anything. And when I got to thinking, oh, here I am writing about the multiverse, I thought, um, well, you know, some people in science say if if multiverse is real, if this is actually explains many things, uh, and if quantum mechanics sort of supports the existence of this, uh, then that certainly tells us it's not a created universe. It's just one of many split realities. And so, and I thought, no, there's no reason. I, in the end of the book, uh, Amity says, well, it's a crazy-ass way to build a universe, to have all these parallel worlds and have you, you live in maybe hundreds of worlds and until you've died in all of them. And uh, but in the end, it could mean that life does indeed have meaning, and that your life has meaning, and that the shape of it is the shape of that tree of your life, all the limbs in all the different worlds. And when that thought occurred to me, I thought, oh, this rounds it out kind of nicely. Yeah. And I, I was really looking forward to the moment I could have Amity right from that perspective. I'm not sure I answered your question, but. Well, no, I think you did. And I think, you know, it also introduces the, the next thing I was going to talk about, which is the fact that that line that Amity has there and so many other places in this book, you know, if you're an underliner, which I am sometimes when I'm reading a novel for the first time and I'm going to do an interview, you can hardly keep your cap on the pen when you're reading this book because there's so many of those lines that just pop out and beg to be copied down and repeated over the dinner table. And yet they never, to me, seem 
forced or out of context, these little gems of wisdom. How do you, how do you impart these, these ideas that, that can be taken off the page, but do it in a way that's natural to the story? I think that, again, comes back to the character. If it's in the voice of the character, and if the character, uh, when I'm going through the book, uh, any book I write, I try my best to give every character a distinct voice Mm -hmm. so that Amity sounds totally different than her father. Her father sounds totally different than Spooky Ed. Uh, Every character, when you're in their point of view, and I'm always in every scene only in one point of view, if I'm in their point of view and I've got a voice that sounds authentic to me and that the reader is going to hear that difference when this comes up. There are books written in which it's all in the author's uh, voice. And there will always be an overriding author's voice controlling the story. But if, if the points of view vary within that, then I think if the character says something authentic to that character, uh, that's when it works for the reader and doesn't seem like it's forced or like it's some sort of proselytizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it comes out of that character's view of the world that you've come to know and trust and like. And, uh, and that means finding a way for that character to express it. I mean, if Jeffy had had that thought at the end of the novel, he wouldn't have said, what a crazy-ass way to build the universe. <laughs> but, but Amity would have. And uh, Jeffy, being more of a dreamer, would have been probably a bit more romantic in the way that he thought about it. So I think if there are those little little moments of wisdom, uh, if, if you want to call it that there, that a character has, or insights is probably a better way to put it, that a character has, or moments of sartori, um, then, um, then I, I think that's what makes them work if it's in a voice that you trust as the character. Yeah. I want to read a short section here, almost at the end of our discussion, and just ask you to comment on how maybe it reflects on some of the themes and ideas and elsewhere. To live well, we need to make decisions based on logic and reason, modified by emotion. The heart often wants what it shouldn't have, something with the potential to ruin your life. It wants something so intensely that we find it easy to do what the heart wants, even if we know it's reckless. Absolutely true, I think. (laughs) (laughs) It's... uh, uh, it certainly speaks to all the, um, the all the major themes in, in elsewhere, uh, uh, because the girl longs for her mother, and Jeffy uh, longs for his wife back, and uh, they can't have this. But they start taking really some reckless chances in order to make this happen again. And in fact, so does the mother. We get scenes from her in one of these alternate realities, uh, and uh, that. Uh, living your life by logic and reason, I'm afraid that uh, we're living in a time where emotion rules a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm afraid a lot of that has to do with the kind of entertainment that has evolved in our world, which has gotten, to my taste, more and more bombastic. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I'm, I don't care if I ever see another superhero movie. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of non-superhero movies are are almost similar to them in that the issues are portrayed in in big emotional comic bookish ways to me, 
and uh, and I wanted characters here that avoided that that logic and reason, but they haven't lost track of their human emotion. And emotion is a great thing, but it isn't the greatest guide to life. And so that sort of little passage uh, brings that home, I hope. Yeah, yeah. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, and hopefully that'll give our listeners something to think about and about you and your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Uh, Sussuration. Uh, Readers tell me I write about it. I use the word too often, but it's (laughs) such a beautiful word. Yes. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Uh, I don't use the F word that often. Uh, I've written sometimes 10 books, 20 books in a row without using it. And now and then I find I have to uh, because it's so within the character. But I I really hate encountering it again and again and again and again in a book. I just think it's unnecessary. Where is your favorite place to write? I can't write anywhere but my office. I'm not a guy who can go out on the patio. So it's here or nowhere. So that you've now already answered the next question, which is where could you never write? So it would be anywhere else. Anywhere, yeah. <laughs> to, to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, having been an English teacher, I'm, I'm sort of locked into everything I was <laughs> yeah. brought up with. Uh, uh, when I'm writing dialogue uh, is when I throw everything out the window. Right, and right. Uh, and sometimes you get feedback, uh, people who don't understand that, but you just have to explain it. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? The first one I remember, a book I ever remember having had a profound effect on me, was The Wind in the Willows mm. by Kenneth Graham. And I must have read that book 20 times yeah. when I was a kid. What are you reading now? Uh, I'm reading mostly research now, uh, although I, uh, I recently uh, reread a Cormac McCarthy uh, novel called uh, The Outer Dark, yeah. which is really dark. <laughs> what book would you like to have written? Oh, uh, I would love to have written The Tale of Two Cities. Oh, gosh, and yeah. damn it, Dickens did it first. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, I think because now there, that book broke me into tears at the end. Yeah, they, yeah. they sacrifice oh the character makes for love for somebody who could never love him. It's just profound. Well, they, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great warning against Jacobin thinking. And, uh, and it's, it's a great book all the way around. Yeah. So I wish I'd done it. Not a short answer, but that's all right. Uh, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A Western. It's one of the few things, you know, I cross genres all the time. Yeah. I mix them up. Uh, and I've always, I've, I loved certain Western writers like Elmer Kent, yeah. Kelton, and, and others, but I just decided I'll never be able to do it. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Uh, gee, uh, <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm always happy they don't come up and spit on my shoes and tell me I write badly. So I guess just that the, you know what it is because it happens and it gives you a glow because it's 
speaks to my own childhood with books. When people tell you your your books have changed my life, yeah. I I had a bad childhood, and you showed me the way out of it, yeah. and that's really the best. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Dean Kuntz, whose new novel, Elsewhere, will be published October 20th. Dean, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Wow. Those were fabulous questions. Oh, thank they you. Weren't the usual, usual thing. I really enjoyed that. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Brian Washington. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.